Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Good morning, Journey Church. Good morning, friends. Good morning, guests who are with us for the first time or the first time in over a year. Uh, We are so happy you're here this morning, here on Resurrection Sunday, 2023. Can I be honest with you? Um, I have not always been a fan of Easter Sunday. As a child, to this day, I do not care for pastel colors, (laughs) unless they show up in a sunrise or a sunset. I don't like the Easter colors. As a child, and even to this day, I've struggled with springtime allergies resulting in suffocating asthma. As a kid, there were many Easter's when I could not get my breath. I could not go to church. Those things leave a mark in your psyche. But then let me also so, so just say that even though I love the Lord as a child... I wasn't the most spiritual kid. And let me just say that chocolate rabbits and yellow peeps could not compete with full-blown presents and gifts like Christmas or my birthday. Now, I'm a pastor. This is going to be my 15th sermon on an Easter Sunday to a congregation. And let me say this, that Uh, Yes, it adds, you know, the Good Friday and Easter, it adds a layer of stress to the work week. However, at this point in my life, I have learned to absolutely love Easter and Resurrection Sunday. I've been changed. And why is that? That is because the resurrection that we celebrate is not merely the foundation for my Christian faith. The resurrection that we celebrate is the foundation for the Christian faith. We need to remember or understand Christians did not launch Christianity. The apostles did not launch Christianity. The church did not launch Christianity. The Bible did not launch Christianity. It was a historical event called the resurrection that launched Christianity and provided the rocket fuel for the church to grow exponentially for the last 2,000 years. Let me say it this way. It's a bottom line for our sermon today. Everything rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In caps with an exclamation mark. Everything. Everything. Let me say it a different way. The resurrection, if it happened, it's game on for all things Jesus. Game on for all things Christian. However... If the resurrection did not happen, it's game over. Everything rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
everything. Now, you might think that I'm being extreme or emphatic. And those of you who know me, well, I am extreme and emphatic. Okay, a couple evidences of this. If you were to read my manuscripts in what I write, I am a huge fan of the triple exclamation mark. One and two just doesn't get it there. Everything else is a single exclamation mark. Everything. But some things need three. We uh, just did a church survey and we had some uh, uh, unscripted anonymous feedback and there were a few comments. We were in an elders meeting. The elders were trying to make sense of one anonymous uh, bit of feed feedback. Uh, and one of the elders posited uh, about my preaching that, Jim, you teach at a level 11. Like 10 is the highest. You're at 11. And when everything's at an 11, maybe nothing's an 11. Okay? But I'm extreme and emphatic. And so you might argue, hey, there might be some questions about the resurrection. But Christianity is still a good thing. You know, the idea that it's kind of like a software, a positive thinking software that people can download and run in the background that can really give them hope, even if it's a fairy tale, it can give them hope to be emotionally buoyant throughout the difficulties of life. There's some value, and there's many people in our culture, very popular people in our culture, that are saying this kind of thing. Like, now it's not historical, but it's still good. Is there a possibility for that third rail? Can I tell you what I love about the Bible? That the Bible is extreme and emphatic. And when it comes to these kinds of issues, it's an all or nothing proposition. Take, for instance, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15 14 through 19. Now, it's been several years since I camped out in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like four to be exact. Um, I love, however, 1 Corinthians 15. Usually I'm tackling verses 1 through 9. This year we're tackling uh, portions of all over 1 Corinthians 15, but primarily starting here in verses 14 through 19 with a very extreme and emphatic statement of the Apostle Paul uh, stated in the negative, that is to say that, that if Christ is not risen bodily from the dead, then this is the conclusion. This is what he says. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That word in the original language means empty. He goes on to say that additionally, your faith is in vain. It's worthless. He goes on to say we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even, Christ, or not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That word in the original language means of no purpose. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, Christians that died, have perished. They've passed out of existence entirely. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. I love it. It's extreme and emphatic. There's no middle ground in Paul's writing here concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Note six things that he says. If Jesus did not rise, these six things are true. Number one, sharing the gospel with others as an apostle apostle is a waste of effort. Number two, believing the gospel is a waste of your life. Number three, Paul and all the apostles are not good guys. They're despicable, deceptive liars. Number four, our sins are unforgiven. We are separated from God and will be so for all eternity. Number five, Christians that we love, that we long to see again, they're gone. They do not exist any longer. Number six, all Christians, even well-read, well-spoken, intelligent ones, are to be pitied as stupid, wretched fools. That's extreme. But that's what Paul says. In fact, he says this a few verses later in verses th- verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Uh, I hope you had some really great mimosa this morning. Why not have a pitcher later on? No, better. Margarita. Drink yourself silly this afternoon. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, that's your only hope. Have fun with that. Many of you know the name Richard Dawkins, foremost atheist, angry atheist, atheist at times. He says this, don't kid yourself that you're going to live again after you're dead. You're not. Make the most of the one life you've got. Live it to the full. And here's the deal. Paul says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I agree with Dawkins. Do whatever makes you happy. Just don't get caught. Okay, try not to hurt someone, don't end up in jail. Be careful. But man, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Dawkins is on the money. It's game over for Christianity. Don't waste your life. Everything rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything. That's why I love Easter Sunday. Now, here's the question. Why is Paul writing this? Who is Paul? Why, who, who are the people that he's writing to? Um, well, this, this letter, it's a very long, large letter, um, written by Paul in 54 AD, a mere 20 years after the resurrection event. Two years prior, the Apostle Paul had been there in Corinth, according to the book of Acts. He spent a year and a half with them and led many, many people to faith in Jesus in Corinth. Well, who was Paul? Well, Paul was uh, formerly called Saul of Tarsus. He was a, a hardcore Jewish Pharisee, passionately committed to the Jewish faith. He saw Christianity as a wretched bastardization of the faith, a cult. Saul did everything in his power to destroy it. But he met Jesus in a vision on the road to Damascus. So transformed was Saul of Tarsus that we know as Paul. He became the number one most outspoken church-planting apostle of the first century, even more than Peter. In fact, we have 13 portions of our New Testament, 27 uh, pieces of literature that makes up our New Testament. 13 of those are from Saul of Tarsus, now called Paul. 
he's so transformed by his eyewitness experience of the resurrected Christ. Who are the Corinthians? They are primarily non-Jewish Greeks. And as Greeks, they're from all kinds of philosophical backgrounds. Stoics, Epicureans, skeptics, pantheists, atheists. Uh, they disagree on politics, religion, morality, ethics, and law. Yet now they are believers in this Jewish Messiah, and they're in the same church. Understand, yes, they're believers, but they're only two years old in Christ. And so their thinking and acting simply has not had time for them to become good Christians. And if you went back and you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, you would see that the church is a hot mess. The kinds of things that Paul is trying to fix in this letter are extraordinary. Much of the letter is to correct their thinking and address their behavior. One of their poor ideas that was radically impacting their living for Christ was this idea that even for Christians, there is no afterlife. Yeah, it's actually the, the reason why he writes chapter 15. In verse 12, he says, Now if Christ, Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Like, Christ rose again, but, but when we die, we just go into nothingness. Why would they think such a thing? Well, they're Greeks. And they've been trained from childhood by their Greek mythology. That upon death, they would cross the river Styx and spend eternity in some kind of amorphous, gray, gooey uh, experience of Hades in the underworld. Or be completely annihilated. And at this point, in their thinking about death in the afterlife, they were more Greek than they were Christian. Follow? Some in the church thought that Jesus was good, but you only get him in this lifetime. And, and the way they figured is like, yeah, if it's true and he rose from the dead, I need some help. I need a guide. I need to know God. I need to go through this life. And hey, if it ends there, that's good enough. A little bit new agey, right? Like just what can I get out of the great spirit for my life? And it's a good thing. That's how they were thinking about this. Paul, however, was appalled by the idea that someone could believe in Jesus and his resurrection and not believe in a glorious afterlife for all believers. Because Paul himself was 100% convinced of this glorious afterlife. And why was he 100% convinced of a glorious afterlife for all believers? Because he was 100% convinced of the bodily resurrection of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is his conclusion to the section that we, we just started with, verse 20. He says this emphatically, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So in Paul's thinking, it was game on for all things Jesus. Game on for all things Christian. Game on. Now, I've done a, a big review of, of 1 Corinthians 15 and distilled three things that we see here in this chapter. 
three ways that it's game on all things Jesus. They're going to move quickly. Here's the first one. First and foremost, if the resurrection is real, we've already looked at it. If it's not real, we've got six things. Okay? If it is real, first and foremost, it is game on for the forgiveness of sins. Game on. And another way to say this is that my past can be forgiven. Listen, I uh, didn't do a lot of the big icky sins that people brag about or boast in. Um, things that stay on your conscience for quite some time. Oh, I did some bad things though. I'm a rascal. Even worse in my childhood. There were girls that I should not have kissed. There were hearts that I broke. There were people that I was scathingly mean to. I was a liar and a cheater. Just a real rascal. I had people in my church that wanted me to get kicked out of the youth ministry. And I, I for one, at, at this age, I look back and I understand what King David of Israel said in the psalm when he said, Remember not the sins of my youth. Please, God, let there be forgiveness for the sins of my youth. And guess what? I haven't stopped sinning ever since. Oh, it's more subtle. It's more sneaky. But listen, if there's not forgiveness of sins, I'm dead meat. I can't live like that. How about you? And yet if the resurrection is for real, game on for the forgiveness of sins. Remember what he said negatively in verse 17 when he said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. But then in verse 20 he says, but Christ has in fact been raised from the dead. What's the takeaway? There's forgiveness of sins. And we can go back to the introduction to the whole section, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. He says, I would not, now I'd remind you brothers of the gospel that I preach to you. The gospel means good news. What's the good news? Which you received. You received some good news. And that's a key word that we're going to hear again today. you got to receive it. And then he says, in which you stand, you're still standing in it. You haven't denounced it or walked away. And by which you are being saved. The word saved, sozo. It, 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 it's bigger than the forgiveness of sins, but it certainly includes and begins with the forgiveness of sins. And what's the idea? Where does the resurrection fit into this? The resurrection proves... That what Jesus did on Good Friday on the cross, and when he said it is finished, paid in full, the resurrection is the gold stamp that says paid in full. It validates and verifies that what Jesus said he did on the cross is true and reliable. Amen? Forgiveness of sins. Secondly, if the resurrection is true, if it's real, then it's game on for immortality and eternal life. In the first instance, not only is my past forgiven, praise Jesus, but my future is secure. That I'm not going to pass out of this life into some kind of gray mist or be no more. Remember how Paul said it in verse 17 and 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They passed out of existence. They're gone. But he goes on to say in verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from, from the dead. And now listen to this. 
Josh pointed this out, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits, first of a kind, is what that means. It's only the tip of the iceberg. And I want you to consider this when you fear death or you think about, but what's it going to be like? Here is your anchor. Jesus already went there and came back. He got his resurrection body. He walked through walls. But he also ate fish and bread. He had a physical body that could do supernatural things. A supernatural body. And he's the first fruits. Meaning those that believe in him and receive him will also be given a body in like kind. Isn't that good news? You read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, which is your afternoon assignment, sometime before you lay your head on the pillow. Read all of 1 Corinthians 15. It's 58 verses. It's thick and meaty. It's heavy lifting. But you're going to learn about the resurrection body, immortality, the conquering of death, once and for all in the kingdom and reign of Christ. Because if the resurrection happened, game on for immortality and eternal life. Thirdly, if the resurrection is real, then it's game on for living for Jesus. Here's the idea. Not only is my past forgiven, not only is my future secure, but my current existence makes sense. Even if it's full of pain and hardship, even my pain and hardship has meaning. It's worthwhile. God is in it doing something in and through my life. For others. Back in verse 19, he said, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's empty, it's worthless, it's stupid. Don't be a Christian. If you don't believe in the resurrection, don't be a Christian. But then he goes on to say, uh, even in, in verse 32, as a way of an illustration, several other arguments, but he says, If the dead are not raised, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? What good is that? You read Paul's story and the things that he did from town to town, village to village. In every city, he would be arrested, imprisoned, beaten. Four times he received 39 lashes. He was stoned a day and a night in the sea. Holding on to a piece of lumber from a broken up ship. He goes, if, if this is true or not true, what a waste of a life. To embrace suffering of this kind. And yet his conclusion based on the resurrection and based on all of chapter 15. 57 verses of argument he concludes with 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And I want to remind you this. He is not talking to pastors. He is not talking to apostles. He is not talking to prophets in evangelists, in ministers. He's talking to Christians that are immature, two years old in their faith, and they're as carnal as the day is long, and yet he concludes this argument for the resurrection with these words, therefore. You always, when you see therefore, you say, what's the therefore, therefore? It's to conclude the entire preceding argument. He says, therefore, based on all this evidence, you've got to go back and read it all. I'm only giving you a sampling, but he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And some of you might see yourself as, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I don't do much, and that's cool. 
And Paul's going, are you kidding me? Based on all the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, therefore, live whatever life you have left for the glory of Jesus and his kingdom on, on behalf of others. I love what Pastor Timothy Keller says. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. Why wouldn't you? Nobody's done that before. So why would you not go, yes, sir, I'm in. He goes on to say, if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? It's extreme and emphatic. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So, so here's the idea. If the resurrection is not real, it's game over. But if it's real, game on for the gospel, my sins are forgiven. Game on for eternal life and a bodily resurrection and eternity with Jesus. Game on for godliness, sacrifice, service, and mission. Game on. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Everything rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything. But here's the nagging question. How do we know? How can we be certain? We're 2,000 years away from this. How do we know that myth has not come in and fairy tale and, and just religious stuff and that this is really not actually true? How do we know? And the answer to that is found at the beginning of Paul's entire argument in verses 3 to 9. So I want to back up and just present the evidence briefly of why the Apostle Paul banked his life and his eternity on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as we go into this, I want to let you know that, that most scholars, skeptic and Christian, believe that verses 3 through 6 are the earliest Christian creed that was designed and designed to be memorized. Most people were illiterate in the first century churches. So they would design a creed that could be memorized and that this creed was designed, even the skeptics, because of the, the data, the evidence that we can find in ma manuscripts, that the creed was designed only two years after the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Ruling out mythology and, and hearsay and fairy tale and rumor, two years. Listen to what it says. For I deliver to you as of first importance. That's really important to stop there. He's saying this is more important than any other thing about you. More important than any other thing that I could teach or preach or tell you. More important than, than your gender, the color of your skin, your ethnicity, uh, your socioeconomic status, more important than how you vote, more important than anything in this world, I delivered to you as a, a first important what I also received, and then here's the creed, and here is the distilled gospel, that which we must believe and receive to have the benefits of the gospel. He says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Why does he say in, in accordance with the scriptures? Because it was foretold. There's over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ. Many which point to 
the Messiah dying for the sins of humanity in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's the gospel, that which must be believed and received. He goes on from here and says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's really careful to preserve the integrity of what he's saying, meaning some have actually died, but many are still available as eyewitness accounts. I dare you to go find one. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Six individuals or groups of individuals who had personal experience, relationship, friendship with Jesus of Nazareth before the crucifixion. Six individuals or groups of individuals who had personal eyewitness experience with the risen Jesus the Christ after the resurrection. And Paul hangs his confidence for the resurrection and all the benefits that come to those who trust Christ. He hangs it all on this evidence. Let me walk you through a few or quickly through all. Cephas. This is the Aramaic name for Peter. He's the one who promised Jesus that he would never deny him. And yet, at the arrest and trial, he denied him not once, but three times. But something happens post-resurrection, post-interaction with Jesus. Peter goes from coward to courageous. In 50 days after the resurrection, he preaches in over 5,000 come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. How does that happen? Look at the next group, the 12. This is a generic title for the original disciples. Understand at this point, um, and we think this is probably the upper room encounter on the first day of the week. Uh, Thomas is not present, and Judas has already hung himself. So we're down to 10, but it's a general generic title for the disciples. And what's fascinating, and even the scripture that was read here from Luke, that when Mary, Mary, and the other gal, Joanna, ran back to tell the, the, the disciples, the tomb is empty, and we saw him, they went, no, we don't believe you. Why? Because nobody was expecting nobody. It was a total surprise, even though Jesus had tried to tell them again and again and again, I'm going to rise on the third day, Whew, right over their head. They're like, nope, we're not hearing that one. Don't want to do that. They had totally forgotten. So when the tomb was empty, they didn't say, he's alive. They said, who stole the body? We got to find the body. Because nobody expected no body. And yet these ten, and then 11, later on with Thomas, go like Cephas, from coward to courageous. The next one, the 500. The 500, so we're, we know that Jesus stayed around for 40 days 
post-resurrection teaching in a, several different places about the kingdom of God. In 500 at once, sat under his teaching like the Sermon on the Mount, but post-resurrection. And some people have posited that maybe they had like a group hallucination. You know, the, the hallucination of hopeful people, but you need to understand in Jewish tradition, which is who Paul was and the early Christians, that visions were always experienced by individuals, not groups. So not only does this rule out a collective hallucination, but Paul almost challenges skeptic readers and listeners of this letter. Go find some of these 500. They're still around. At the time of the writing, you could still interview them and actually line up their accounts to see if they're, they're lying or making it up. Go and find them. Fourthly is James. This is a fascinating one. The scripture teaches us that Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. Mary had more children after the birth of Jesus. The brothers are James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. I want to ask you this. Can you imagine growing up in the home with Jesus as your big brother? I mean, some of you know the damage because you felt like the black sheep of the family. But could you imagine? It doesn't matter how good of a kid you are. There's no way you're going to measure up to big brother. Can you imagine, Mary? Why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> and, and you look at this and you go, it's no wonder that in the gospel accounts, the brothers did not believe their big brother Jesus. They watched his ministry. They mocked him. They disbelieved him. They were embarrassed by him. Even so much at one point, they came to take him home. Mom, Dad, you complimented him way too much. He's got a Messiah complex. Oh, let's get him home. Just get him home where we can, like, protect him in our family name. And that's actually, that's what happened. And yet this one, James, the half-brother of Jesus, went on to become the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem after experiencing his older brother, he watched him murdered, and then he witnessed the resurrection. And because of that, he dies a martyr as the bishop of the church at Jerusalem. They threw him off the temple. And some other terrible things I won't get into. That's how he dies. I love it how he opens up his little epistle, James. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, James, a servant of God... And of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not merely my big brother. Lord Jesus Christ. And I am his servant. Wow. Okay, then all the apostles, number five. This would now include Thomas, Jude, and James. Uh, maybe some other, a few others. Uh, here's the deal. There's several of them. And if this was collusion, if this was uh, fabricated... Why did not at least one of them break away and blow the whistle? Call Snowden. WikiLeaks. Leaks. It's going to be somewhere, sometime. And yet, we know that 10 of the original 12 went to their death as martyrs 
And actually, they tried to do it to John as well. Church history, I believe this, that they attempted to boil him in oil. And by miracle, they couldn't kill him. Why? He hadn't finished the Bible yet. Revelation. God needed him. Yet 11 of the 12, Judas kills himself, the rest of them go all over the world, and each one, one by one by one, when facing death, saying, take it back, you're making it up, that's too stupid, I don't believe you, take it back or we'll kill you, and they go, I can't lie, I don't want to die, but I cannot tell a lie, I saw him, firsthand, he is alive. And then finally, Saul of Tarsus, the one writing this letter to the church at Corinth, the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because he caused such harm to the ancient church. You put all this data together, and I love, once again, Timothy Keller says this, the scholars agree that as long as you do not begin with a philosophical bias against the possibility of miracles, is it possible that something supernatural could happen in this very natural world. And if you go, no, I believe in science. That's all that happens. Then, okay, we're out of bullets. But if you don't begin with that bias, then Timothy Keller goes on to say, the resurrection has as much evidence as any other ancient historical event. Men and women, do you know what this does for us? Do you know what kind of gift this is for us some 2,000 years away from the resurrection event? Let me ask you, do you believe, but sometimes you wonder? Doubt creeps in, certain points of your life go, but, but, but can't we really know? I love the Lord and I've been baptized and I try to follow him, but is it kind of crazy? You believe, but sometimes you wonder. Do you wonder how anyone could believe? You're the skeptic. The atheist. Bunch of idiot religious people. How about this? Do you wonder if you could ever believe again? You had a faith. Maybe you went away to college and freshman biology. Something the professor said. You go, oh wow, I'm awakened. There is no God. Or some other experience and you've walked away. Your love has grown cold. Your faith has gone lukewarm. For wherever you find yourself, the Apostle Paul would argue that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is irrefutable. Won't you believe the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection as well? Can I take you back to the very beginning? Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. There's the key. You must not only believe it, but to receive it. He goes on to say, in which you stand, verse 2, and by which you are being saved. In verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Why does he say that? Why is that the most important first step? And it's because of this, our sins bring great consequences between us and a holy God. And the only thing left for him to do, if our sins are unforgiven, the only thing left for him to do is to be fair, to be just, 
and to give us what we deserved. And if we die like that, there is condemnation, judgment, and eternal conscious punishment. But can I also add, nobody, I repeat, nobody has to go through that. Why? Because Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In fact, it's Jesus in a conversation with a religious man named Nicodemus in John 3, verse 16. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes on him should never perish but have eternal life. Can I ask you this morning, how would you like to know that your past is forgiven? How would you like to know that your future is rock-solid secure? How would you like to know that your present life makes sense? Even in the suffering and hardship, it has meaning and purpose. The invitation today would be to receive the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ for the confidence of immortality and eternal life. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ and live the rest of your life for him. The Lord this morning invites you to believe. The Lord asks you to receive this gospel. Would you bow with me? If you're here this morning and you're uncertain, but you want all that the gospel offers, you're willing to take that step of faith, and yeah, the best you're going to get is historical testimony. A testimony that launched the church that's been growing exponentially over 2,000 years. Who's changed the very fabric of world history. And to anchor it there in the resurrection and the eyewitness accounts and come back to the gospel and say, God, I want that for my life. I believe. Perhaps you'd pray something like this. Dear Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus came to die for my sins in accordance with the scriptures. I believe in Jesus and receive him as my Savior and my Lord. I want to live the rest of my life for him, his kingdom, and his mission. Amen? And if you prayed that, welcome to the family. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.